Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm very excited to be joined for an interview with J.M. DeMatteis, writer of works like Spider-Man, Craven's Last Hunt, Justice League International, Captain America, Man-Thing, Moonshadow, so many more, and now launching The Multiverse via Kickstarter and Spellbound Comics with a really cool artistic roster of launching a whole new shared universe. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the career and kind of see where it takes us. Um, thanks so much for joining. I guess let's let's start here. It is end days of the Kickstarter campaign as we record this. How has... It's the end time. Yeah. The end time. How's it been going? <laughs> How are you feeling about it? It's actually been going great. I just checked a minute ago and we... It looks like we've broken... We're close to $47,000. Our initial goal was 10. We set the initial goal low because we wanted people to know that once we cross that bridge, no matter what, you're going to get your books. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, uh, you know, we want, we, since we're launching four new number ones, and I'll tell plus another one, which we just announced today. So there's actually, oh, okay. Five. I didn't see that yet. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there's, um, there's, we're trying to map out a future here. So the better we do with, with the Kickstarter, the better that future will be, not just for one of the books, but for all the books. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's been really exciting. Uh, it's one of the most exciting things I've been involved in in all my years uh, doing this. It's also, as I've discovered, very stressful and exhausting, yeah. but in a good way in the end, you know, because you really, you got to stay on top of this for the whole time that Kickstarter is out there. It's like 30 days of constantly working it while I'm trying to get my writing done at the same time. Sure. So it's been a fascinating learning experiment the whole time, I have to say. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I hear that consistently from from creators doing Kickstarters. It's just like that marketing side of it is a lot of work, <laughs> and and you it's such a, a time. Yeah, crunch. It, it really is. You know, doing the creative work that's the joy, but you know, this other part is like you got to use a different part of your brain that you're not used to. At least I'm not used to using. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Now, this is such a uniquely creator-focused new series launch. You know, it's it's launching four new number ones, all part of a new shared universe, all from your creator vision, right? Hence the, the pun, yeah. which is a great name, Demultiverse. Um, it's really celebrating your career, though. You know, it's really celebrating sort of your legacy and, and sort of the different styles of comics that you've done. How did this partnership come together and and what kind of sold you on the premise? Or were you the one selling it, I suppose? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've been doing through my whole career I've, in, in comics, not to uh, we're forgetting my work in prose and TV and movies and all that. Just in comics, I've been bouncing back and forth between doing the Marvel and DC characters that we know and love and that I love very much and my own creator own work. And I like mm -hmm. to do work in both worlds because there's a certain satisfaction that comes when you are building a universe on your own out of your own imagination that has nothing to do with those pre-existing characters it's not a knock sure. against those characters i've been writing them for 40 years i love them you know but there's something special about creating something new that's all your own and i'm always looking for new venues for these books um and one of the things that's fascinated me in recent years has been kickstarter and I see all these other guys and gals going out there and doing Kickstarter and, and it seems really attractive. And then I always stop because I also think just what we're saying, oh, my God, this seems like a lot of work. You yeah. know, I'm, and again, not talking about the creative work, which is the joyful work, but the work of really having to maintain it, stay on top of it, uh, promote it, all those things. But I was lucky enough um, to connect with my friend David Baldy, who we became friends a couple of years ago. He took my writing workshop. David is a, a writer and producer for television. He's worked in TV for like 20 years, also a huge comic book fan, and always wanted to stick his toe into the comic book waters. And he well, basically, we were having a conversation like this, and he said, you know, I'd be happy to partner with you on the Kickstarter and take some of that burden. And David is also a businessman. He runs a very successful business along with his writing career. So he's got that brain. He's got that left brain that I don't possess at all. I'm all like all right yeah. brain. And... Uh, we started talking about, well, what do you want to do? And I pitched him like four different things, thinking we would pick one of them and see it through uh, to a five issue series. And he said, well, why don't we do all four of them? And he came up with this concept of launching four new number ones. And the idea yeah. of, and all of these stories are all different genres, different tones, different styles. So each one is unique in its own way. And kind of, as you said, each one reflects a different direction of my writing career. So I suddenly thought, that's a really cool idea. 
and we got together this fantastic group of artists, you know, uh, most of whom I've worked with before, not to mention all the guys that pitched in and are doing alternate covers and covers for our collected edition. So it's a huge array of talent, the color down to the colorists and the letterers, everybody, top notch talent. And this thing just sort of exploded. And here we are. And uh, and it's it's really, really exciting and really fun and exhausting, but in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the things I enjoy is it, it's what the way you talk about on the Kickstarter is, you know, these are the number one issues, right? And folks can can get a copy of those and kind of get it collected as, as potentially kicking off the series. There's a fan vote, I think, to, to kind of pick. Yeah, like, so yeah, let me I should probably clear that up. One. So there's, there's yeah. four individual issues or you could get them. There's four individual issues. Also, each issue has an alternate cover by a, a very, very well-known artist providing an alternate cover. You can buy them individually. You can buy the alternate covers individually. You could buy them all, or you can buy the collected edition, which will have all four of the books and all the artwork plus extras in the back. And I'm writing little essays about each project. Tom DeFalco is writing a forward to the whole collection. So you can mix and match. And then today we just announced as a bonus, a fifth title that we're throwing into the mix. That What's that one? I haven't be, seen it yet. That's, it's called the Edward Gloom Mysteries. It's sort of a Gothic thriller. And we'll, 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 we'll get to that. We'll talk about them all individually. And we just threw that because this is another, another project I've been working on with an artist friend of mine, Vasilis Godzillis, a wonderful artist from Greece. And we thought, let's throw in one more. And this one is just one that's in there as a bonus. You can buy it as an add-on. It's not part of the contest part. The contest part is anyone who buys all four of them or buys the collected edition gets to vote on which is the first of these series because our intention is to continue them all. But yeah. they get to vote on which is the first that we will continue and based on the voting, that's the one that we'll go forward with and finish the miniseries. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. I was especially excited to see Sean McManus in the roster um, because I really love the Dr. Fate run that, that you two yeah, did Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's one of my favorite things that I've ever done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's super, it's a super fun run. It's, it's, I wish more people were familiar with it and it was better collected, frankly, <laughs> because it's better it's collected. That, How about collected like, at all? Yeah. How about anything? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, you got like Doctor Fate in a movie right now, and it's like that's a that's. I know. A run I'm that hoping that maybe to. that will will get some reflected love from that, and they'll finally collect that run. You know, because as, think you, so. as you, you know, think I'm so. sure I did a four issue four issue Doctor Fate miniseries with Keith Giffen that um, set up the whole new the whole new Doctor Fate, and then Sean and I did two years uh, of Doctor yeah. Fate, which was a complete story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is something that's pretty rare you don't get to do that very often you know right uh, and uh, well, it's, it's, it's it's a oh go ahead go ahead oh no sorry i i, I was just gonna say like it's the rare superhero book that feel it feels like a creator own verse i think in a lot of ways yes um where it feels like you That's really got to put things, your own you know, stamp on it we did this in the 80s there was a lot of freedom in the 80s i have to say and i was working with karen berger and art young and this was pre-vertigo but had there been vertigo this would have been a vertigo book because i yeah, i was yeah. given the freedom and we were given the freedom to make this book as personal as possible. And I, you know, every once in a while, you're lucky enough to get a framework to pour like everything that you are and all your points of view on life, the universe and everything in that moment into that series. And that's what I got to do with Dr. Fate. So to be able to work with Sean again, all these years later, cause he is one of my all time favorite collaborators on uh, Layla in the lands of after has just been delightful, really delightful. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now you were pretty ahead of the curve on your Dr. Fate run, especially in terms of like, you know, you had a, a character that historically had been male, you put a woman in the lead role, um, a switch from that history. That's something that comics like the big two have caught up with in more recent years. What kind of resistance, if any, did you meet at the time? What was that experience like? You know, I didn't meet any, and not, certainly not editorially. There was no resistance. You know, as I said, I was working with Karen Berger, who is as forward thinking yeah. an editor as you're going to find. And then Art Young, who oh, was, yeah. you know, part of Karen's Karen's office. So no, I had two incredibly supportive editors who let us let us basically let out the line as far as it could go. It just held on enough so that we didn't float away. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah, it's a super fun run. I do recommend people check that out. Like go to your local comic shop, ask them, hey, can you help me find <laughs> some Yeah, I try to explain that one because run. it's like it, it, it's a little bit of everything. On one level it's superhero, but it's also supernatural. It's also very spiritual slash mystical. It's also very psychological and it's also comedy, depending on the yeah, moment yeah. and the story. It's all those things. And that's why it was so much fun, because it was everything that I wanted to write within that one package. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for me, it was as a big fan of JLI and, and the comedy beats, certainly that that, that you, Keith, and, and Kevin McGuire put into that. I think Dr. Fate is like a really good um, connective tissue, right? Uh, and, and of course, there's some yeah. JLI crossover and stuff like that in terms yeah. of the tone. Uh, one thing that I, I, I'm curious about, so I, I've actually been reading Moonshadow for the first time recently in preparation for this, and I've been oh, having a great, great time going through it. Um, but one of the things that I love about it, I'm really enjoying, is like you just clearly lean into writing creatively regardless of the expectations of the medium. And I've seen you talk in interviews a lot how you you were finding yourself as a writer, like you really had this yeah. flourishing moment of like, oh, this is this is my voice, this is who I am. Um, and one of the things that I liked about when in interviews when you talk about this is some of the stuff that maybe feels more like prose or things that are typically outside comics, you're like, well, it's a comic because we say it is. <laughs> like we put it in a comic. That's exactly we can right. Yeah. Um, how much do you enjoy playing with form and expectations still? And do you think we'll see some of that with uh, the Demultiverse? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there, there is a philosophy that says, well, comics, I remember I used to hear this a lot, comics are movies on paper. And my answer is, mm -hmm. well, if that's what you want it to be, that's what it is. Comics are mm -hmm. any combination of words and pictures that you feel are appropriate for the story that you're trying to tell. You know, and with Moonshadow was really my first chance to really explore that. One of the things I explore, and, and it and it shows up in some of these books as well, Wisdom especially, and actually in this new book that we just added today, the Edward Gloom Mysteries. I like the doorway between comics and novels, you know, and prose. I don't yeah. think there's, I, I, you know, if you read Moonshadow, there'll be sections where it's essentially text and illustration for three or four pages. And then we jump back into regular comics and then back into text and illustration. Right. And I like weaving that way. And then you may do a sequence where it's all regular comics panels with no words whatsoever and, and three pages of, of text and illustration. It's whatever the, whatever the story needs. And I like to play with that. And I like to, to continue to play with that. And you'll see that in these books for sure. Each one of them has a little bit of a different flavor and a little bit of a different bent. Um, but there are sections of wisdom, for instance, which is our supernatural Western, where it's just that. And, and Tom Mandrake did these pages that almost look like woodcuts, just absolutely mm. beautiful, while we step back in time to get into some of the characters' backstory and then jump back into, quote, standard comic book storytelling from there. Sure, sure. No, it's very cool. I, I definitely appreciate that. Because as somebody who, you know, I always say this, as somebody who reads too many comics, it's incredibly appealing when creators have the confidence and the desire to play with like yeah like, like get us out of the funk get us out of the the grids for a minute and do something that feels a little different um and it can be as simple as you know one one technique i really enjoy in like your your late 80s early 90s work is just like tilting text boxes like 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 just breaking up the text moving it all around the page i don't know just little tricks like that that kind of right they, right, they right, feed right. into the tone it helps you know yeah 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 well because it's you know it's I always say every single element of the story is really, really important in a comic book. One element wrong, like the reader takes the lettering for granted. Oh, it's just the lettering. I'm just oh, yeah. reading and reading and reading. But for me as the writer, the lettering is the delivery system for my story. And the way those words enter the reader's brain impacts how they perceive my story. And I've seen it again and again. A really good letterer will raise a story up. And I've seen a great script be dragged down by subpar lettering. And you don't realize it as yeah. a reader because you're not really conscious of the lettering. But if the lettering is off, the story doesn't seem right. And it's true of every piece of the puzzle in a comic book. You know, if the wrong inker is paired with the penciler, if the coloring is off, any one of those things can completely blow the thing up. You need all the elements in right. place. Right. For sure. For sure. Well, and hopefully that's something that is is coming together nicely on Demultiverse here. Um, so just in terms of like the plan, you know, you kind of laid out what the Kickstarter is, what the kickoff is down the road you know you're working here with with tom mandrake sean mcmanus matthew Dow smith david baldion and now a fifth announcement um what's the hope for this shared universe like where do you where do you want it to be what do you want it to look like in one two years yes. right well, well let me back one thing up because you keep referring to it as a shared universe and the only reason it's a shared universe is because these universes came out of my head it's not like they're all we're doing a big okay. crossover or anything people here you know, multi, multiverse to multiverse, and they're thinking, oh, it's, you know, comic books, Crisis on Infinite Earth, yes. or whatever it is. My yes. goal is just to tell good stories with these different, you know, we have five different stories. I want to I want to see these stories get out there. I want to finish them. They're all really, really big stories. 
So for some of them, I don't even just see one miniseries. I see them going on as a series of miniseries. Okay. But the first goal is just to get them out there and tell these stories. You know, so, so much, so much of comics, and it's not really the fault of the companies. It's sort of a shared blame between the companies and the audience have become events. You know, everything is the big event. Let's jump on for the big event. And this is the event that's going to change everything until the event six months from now that's going to change everything until the event six months after that. And for yep. me, that's not what it's about. I understand why it's, if, if people stop buying these big events, the companies would stop doing them. It's as simple as that. Um, yeah, sure. To me, it's all about just tell a good story. And these are four, now five stories that I'm really invested in. And I just want to bring people along on a ride and tell them good stories. It's as simple as that. And I'm happily, I have these phenomenal collaborators to help me do that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Now, one one big event that you did get pulled into, infamously, of course, is the Clone Saga. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, one thing I, I often talk about, and and we've talked about, we cover Marvel Comics kind of year by year. And one thing that stands out from that era, though, is like your Spidey books don't really suffer. And, and in fact, you get these really good Ben Riley stories out of that era that are a lot of fun. And I think fans. Fans who have experienced that and don't succumb to the sort of fan consensus of like, oh, Clone Saga, I got no time for that, have a pretty good time with those Ben stories. That's a character you got to return to very recently this year yes, um, with I David Baldion, who's one of the artists in yes. this. It's, it's a really fun miniseries. Uh, what was it like? I guess actually not, not what was it like going back so much as what is it about that character that appeals to you now, like going back to it? Like are there questions that you feel like you can address you know, 30 years later that you didn't in the 90s, let's say? You know, first of all, let's back it up to, to, the, to the source, which is Peter Parker. And I've always said that Peter Parker is probably the most three-dimensional, psychologically real a character in superhero comics. I mean, Peter, I've written mm-hmm. so many Spider-Man stories. Peter is a real three-dimensional human to me, and he feels like an old friend that I know him intimately. And Ben sure. is, the fun of Ben is that he is Peter, and he's not because his experiences took him down a darker road. So there's a, there's a lot more shadow in that psyche and it brings out other textures in him. And you know, characters are just like people. Uh, we as writers, there are certain, just the way where you meet certain people, you connect with them, other people you may not connect. I just connect with those two characters, Peter and Ben, and maybe in, in some small ways, maybe Ben even more because of his trauma and the road that he's walked. Mm. So. It's not so much I want to say more about him as a reunion with an old friend. It's really like yeah. if, if I had a friend that I haven't seen in 15 years and I run into them and we sit down and we have lunch and tell me about yourself. What have you been up to? What are you going through? Tell And and you, mm. you pick up where you're left off and then you go deeper. So writing this miniseries was was really writing. It was I, it might have been a period where I, I, I was probably off the Spider-Man books when Ben had reached that point in time. So this is my chance yeah. to go back to that point in time and really understand what was he thinking? What was he feeling? What was he going through? You know, because I, I like to write from the characters out. I'm interested in their psychology. I'm interested in their emotions and that the story will form itself around that as opposed to like, here's a really cool big concept and let me see if I can jam the characters into it, you know? Sure, sure, right. Now, Marvel's been doing a lot recently of kind of legacy-type titles or mm-hmm, miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, do you enjoy the opportunity to sort of do flashbacks to stuff that, that you had written previously and that you were kind of known for, or do you wish you got to play more with, like, the current continuity sandbox? You know, it's it's probably both. Uh, I, if I was going yeah. back to these characters just for a nostalgia trip, you know, let's get the band back together and play our greatest hits, then right. it's not worth anything. The, the thing I enjoyed about the Ben Riley series and what we're trying to do with this new Spider-Man, The Lost Hunt, which will be out on Wednesday, is yeah. to find something new to say, to make it feel as significant, because it, it really doesn't matter where the story is set. kind of goes to what I was saying before. A story is a story is a story. Am I telling you a good mm. story? Is it a story of value, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever level? And that's what I'm trying to, I want to make these stories have value and worth and weight. And if I succeed... And it's a good story. If I fail, then it's just, you know, oh, I read, I, yeah, I read about Ben Riley when I was 12 and I want to read it now. That's not the thing. Right. I want you to come back and really get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. No, and it reads well. So you just mentioned the Spider Man The Lost Hunt debuts next mm-hmm. week. This is going to be 
um, it's being pitched as sort of a Craven the Hunter sequel of sorts, or Craven the Hunter sequel. Um, Craven's yeah, last it's a kind of a it's kind of a Craven's Last Hunt sideways. As you know, it's not really, it's a little okay. prequel, it's a little sequel, so it feels kind of sideways to me. It, it you know it yeah. takes place in the same time period as the Ben Riley series, in that now instead of being with Ben, we're with Peter and Mary Jane. Mary Jane is pregnant. They're married. They went off to Portland to start a new life. The only story that was ever told about them at that point in time was um called the, the final adventure i think and at the end of that peter lost his powers so we yeah. have a powerless peter parker a very pregnant mary jane trying to build this new life in portland peter now is teaching at a college uh mj is teaching theater at a local high school and into this mix steps gregor if you remember him from that era who was sort of craven's yeah. right hand man who has been waiting for the right time to exact his revenge because he holds peter responsible for sergey's death and for the death of his son, Vladimir, even though it was Cain that killed him. Um, mm -hmm. So we have a powerless Peter Parker, and suddenly this threat from the past comes to upend his life. And the question becomes, well, what makes a hero? Is he, is he a hero because he can spin webs and climb walls, or is it because of who he is? The third character that enters into this is a mystery character, brand new character that we've created. And she's the one who holds the key to Craven's past that we explore here. Because I was always fascinated by the question of, all right, here's this aristocratic Russian family who fled the revolution, came to the United States. Suddenly they're living in poverty. The father's a broken alcoholic. The mother ends up in a mental institution and takes her own life. How did he turn into that guy that's running around in, in leopard skin pedal pushers with a rifle trying to shoot Spider-Man, you know? So I always felt like there was <laughs> right. a piece missing. And, and so this new character, who I don't want to say anything about, because she, it's a, other than it's a she, sure. she's a really cool character. I've, fall, I've fallen in love with her. And I think she's, she's a very, very pivotal part of this story. So we're telling a very important story about Peter and MJ and Gregor, but we're also getting into uh, Craven's backstory and expanding that mythology as well. So it's a really cool story. I'm very excited about it. Cool, cool. Now, is this a, um, for a lot of Spidey fans, like Craven's Last Hunt is in the conversation for best Spider-Man story. I mean, it's it's a it's a hot, hot debate, of course, but like it's up there for many. And I'm sure you've heard the accolades. I love it as well. Did you have a sense of reaching for those heights when you wrote it? Like as you're working on that story? No. Kinda, no? Oh, that's interesting. You, you don't, you know, you, you don't think that way. Yeah. You know, you can't sit down and think, I will now write the Spider-Man story that we'll be talking about 35 years from now. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. You're just, just I, I hate to be redundant, but you're just sitting there trying to write the best story you can write in yeah. that moment. And especially back then, because even collected editions were fairly new. I remember when Craven was collected in a hardcover, it was like, that was a huge deal, you know? Oh my God, yeah. they collected yeah, this yeah. thing in a hardcover edition? So, you know, a lot of times you're done, six issues come out, you're on to the next thing. You know, there were things mostly weren't collected and that story could have been forgotten. It just so happened. I always say when you release the story into the wild, it's not yours anymore. It, it's between the story and the readers and the readers pick the stories that seem to mean the most to them. There may be mm -hmm. lots of other stories or even other Spider-Man stories that may mean more to me personally than Craven's Last Time. Not that I don't love that story. I mean, working with Mike Zeck sure. and Bob McCloud, you can't ask for anything more. But the audience decided that that was the story for them. And so here I sit all yeah. these years later, I go to conventions, at least a third of what I sign has got to be Craven's Last Time. Yeah, you know? sure. And, and what I love about massive. it, people are discovering it for the first time. Uh -huh. You know that like you're yeah. saying you're reading Moonshadow for the first time. That's like that's incredibly gratifying for me to know that that story is still out there and people are still reading it. And it's the same thing is happening with Craven. I see it with the JLI stuff that Keith Giffen and I did that people. Oh, I just read this last oh, week. Yeah. I really loved it. And that's what you hope for. So if the audience says that's the one for them, it's OK with me. You know, I got nothing to complain about. Yeah. Have you. So, I mean, you're you're out there, obviously, and. and doing great work and folks are talking to you at cons and all that. Have you seen a resurgence over the last, I don't know, several years, let's say last handful of years in JLI fandom? Because that book feels uniquely ahead of the curve, at least to me, in terms of the tone and the attitude. And it feels like the fandom for that book grows and grows and grows. Is that, has that been your experience as well? It, I, I guess it has, you know, I, I sometimes I look at, I look at some of these Marvel movies 
and the tone of some of these Marvel movies. And I yeah. said, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's JLI. That's what yeah. they're doing. That's, they're doing JLI. Guardians of the Galaxy. That, that's not JLI, you know? Um, uh-huh. And I know James Gunn is a fan, so it makes sense. Um, so, yeah, you know, I guess when I think about it, it's, it's, it's not so much that it, does it grow and grow and grow. Yeah, probably. Probably in recent years, more and more. Uh, but, but I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm going to more and more conventions and I'm talking to more people. Although I have to say the past two sure. years since COVID, I haven't been to any conventions. But before that, I was going to yeah. quite a few conventions, not just not just in the States, but around the world. There have been a, a lot of in, international conventions and we get, that we get invited to. And uh, my wife and I go and have a beautiful trip in another country. And the best part is you get to meet some guy in Italy or Mexico or Greece who said, these books mean so much to me. And, you know, the JLI fan, yeah. in, JLI fan in Mexico, the, the Craven fan in, in Italy, the Moonshadow fan, whatever. It's so gratifying because you don't, you know, most of us that, that do this, we work in isolation. We're in our offices. We're by ourselves. We're, I always say I'm in alone in a room playing with my imaginary friends. And, you, and sometimes yeah. you forget that the work goes out there. So any feedback that you get is phenomenal. And then to travel to another country. I was just, I did a podcast the other day with a guy from Saudi Arabia, which I had no idea that there's a hardcore comic book fan base in Saudi sure. Arabia. And he's sitting with me completely emotionally moved talking about the death of Aunt May in yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 400. And I'm like, I'm almost speechless, you know, in the best possible way. It really, it really touches me very deeply to know that these stories have gone out and made their way across the world and they actually mean something to people. It's a great thing. Yeah, no, it's very cool. It's very, very cool. Um, yeah, no, that's definitely one thing that even just in my limited capacity of, of talking about these things and writing about them online is you just realize the the extent of the fandom, the, the global nature of it, you know, like it's just so absolutely massive um, and so heartfelt, I think, in so many cases. You really know, heartfelt feels because like, comic book fans yeah. are very passionate and they're very sincere. Yeah. You know, because they love this stuff. And I know because I'm still a fan at heart and yeah. I love this stuff. I couldn't have done it for as many years as I've been doing it had I not loved it. It's the same when it's all cooking for me. It's the same feeling I had when I was 10 years old, laying on my living room floor, reading comics. It's that, that sense of wonder and that sense of excitement. And you hope that you never lose that. I was just, I, you know, I was just thinking about this because it's as, as I get older, um, you know, I'm thinking more and more about, I read a lot of superhero comics. I often very much enjoy them, but then there's that, that creeping adult cynicism sometimes, right? Where it's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I kind of just want to read, more mature stuff, stuff outside the medium. What do you think helps you stay engaged and kind of maintain that that passion for those types of stories? Um, you know, superhero, which can be obviously geared younger at times. You know, I never, first of all, I don't think of them as being geared younger. You know, I, I just don't. I just think of them. Yeah. Again, I'm going to be redundant. I'm just thinking, can I tell the best story with this character? What can I explore in this character's psyche and his heart and her or her heart and soul? Um, so I don't think of it that way. Um, I have to say also one of the reasons I've been able to return to these characters again and again is because of what we were talking about with the Demultiverse books, that I've also been able to go out and do lots of other things. I've written autobiographical sure. comics. The stuff I do with Giffen is, is humorous comics. I've done you know, uh, kid-friendly fantasy. I've done the personal creator-owned work like Moonshadow, um, metaphysical stories, you know? So I like to mix it up. That's what keeps me going. Yeah. I think, honestly, if I'd only written superheroes all these years, I think I would have probably burned out. But because right. I have that diversity, not to mention the work I've done in TV and film and prose and all these other things, I then get to come back to it with a fresh eye. So when someone says, hey, you want to write Ben Riley?" I get excited because I get to go play with my friend Ben Riley again, you know? Sure, sure. No, that's cool. That's cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting. The diversity of your bibliography is, is really pretty stunning. Usually when I, I come into these interviews, you know, I like to prepare by reading as much of a creator's catalog, essentially, as I can. Um, and with yours, it was like, I, I can't touch. <laughs> Nearly, I, can't, I can't even close to, to cover that. But I did as much as I could. I read, <laughs> I read a boatload that I hadn't read before. You know, sometimes people fun. want to discuss my career. I'm on a panel and they want to discuss it chronologically. So, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, hour is, the hour is over and we're like at 1983. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you know, I've been doing this a long time, so you really can't do it chronologically. Um, yeah, but, sure. But, you know, There's a lot of good I, stuff I, out I, there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I would I would love to bring it back to the multiverse just to let people know what these individual Please. books are, you know, and who's doing yeah. them. And uh, I'll, I'll do the yeah, shorter definitely. version. Yeah, 
Uh, so so the, there are the four main books and then this bonus book that we unleashed today. The four main books are the ones you get to vote on. You mentioned Sean McManus and Dr. Fate. So Sean's doing a book called Layla in the Lands of After, which is about a 13-year-old girl who is riding her bike home one chilly October night, finds herself enveloped in a ball of light, carried away, lands in this extraordinary magical land where the rivers sing and the trees talk and the animals have consciousness. And she thinks she's like, is this Oz? Is this Wonderland? Is this Neverland? You know, it's the classic, you know, through the wardrobe kind of feeling until yeah. this cat comes walking up and she realizes that this is her cat that died five years before. And then this old man appears and she realizes this is her dead grandfather. And that, that, that light that enveloped her was the light of the car that ran her down on the way home. And this is not Oz or Neverland. This is the afterlife. And she decides, I'm 13 years old. I'm too young to die. There's got to be a way to get me back. And they have this small window of time to make their way through all these multiple lands because my concept is as many souls as there are, that's as many different afterlives as there are because we all get the afterlife that we expect and project. And so yeah. they have to make their way back to try to get Layla back before the window closes. So that's the okay. first one. And Sean, you know, you know, Sean has worked with Alan Moore on Swamp Thing and Neil Gaiman on Sandman and me on Fate and so many other things. And he, if you want someone that's going to build a fantasy world for you like this, I mean, the work, if you've seen any of the pages online, the work that Sean is doing on this is just extraordinary, just extraordinary. But it's true of all these guys. I think they're all at the top of their game with these books. So the second one is a supernatural Western called Wisdom. And uh, my one liner on that would is, is Deadwood meets Lord of the Rings. Because on the one hand, it's awesome. a very gritty, realistic Western. On the other hand, it's the journey of our main character who eventually evolves from this very sort of um, pampered son of a, of a wealthy businessman living, uh, living in, uh, in New York in the 1850s to uh, as they move west, as his life begins to fall apart, as these spectral beings burn down his home and he thinks killed his wife and child, he evolves into one of the fiercest gunfighters in the West and ultimately becomes a sort of Dr. Fate of the Old West. He becomes hmm. a sorcerer tasked with defending the world from this great darkness that's coming. So that's the one hand is he's protecting the world from the darkness that's coming. On the other hand, he finds out his wife and child are both alive. It's a little bit of sort of John Ford's The Searchers there. He has to find them, save them, redeem them, and save them from this dark force. So it's a big cosmic story. It's a very deeply personal story. It's a hardcore Western, and it's a magical story at the same time. Yeah. And Tom Mandrake, whose two fortes are doing the supernatural and doing the Western. So there's like no one that could do it better. If you know Tom, if you go back to Tom's work, say, on The Spectre. Right. You know, yeah. he's just beautiful, beautiful work. No one can do the supernatural like Tom can, and he's just as good with Westerns. And He's just done some gorgeous work on wisdom. So that's wisdom. I have, I have third a question one. for you based on those first oh, sure. two, if Go you ahead. don't mind. Um, no, yeah, no. Not. So a lot of your career in these two books, especially, right, there's a certain sort of cosmic spirituality that you're known yes. for and, and work in the supernatural. What is, you know, you, you're saying it, you know, you, not to like, not, not as a negative, but just like you're like, I want to tell good stories and like that's the key and that's the focus. How do you ground when you're we're talking about things that are so big right you're talking about this cosmic spirituality spirituality how do you ground that and and you know beyond just like well it's about character like when you're writing those sequences how do you try to keep it at a level <laughs> of human understanding if you know what i mean no i know what you mean because if you're getting to, first of all if if all you're doing is writing a philosophical tract you've lost the game immediately you know what i mean if i want to write a philosophical yeah. tract i'll write a book of philosophy so you don't want it to be that it sure. has to be a great story with a great story engine. And, and the, the, the readers have to identify with and believe in the characters because if it gets a little too cosmic without the grounding in humanity, it's like you're letting out the string and then you're cutting it and the balloon's going to float away. It's so going, it's yeah. really about creating characters that people feel are real and identify with and then they take you on that journey into the cosmic. And even the cosmic has to be relatable because ultimately in all these stories why they appeal to me is all these things that you're investigating when you're getting into the cosmic and the mystical and the supernatural it's all reflections of our own psyche mm -hmm. it's a way to literalize the things that are in our head ultimately mm -hmm. 
All these fantasy worlds are, for me, are a way to literalize things that we all know and think and feel inside our heads. And, you know, you're getting into the dark and more supernatural. So you're getting into the corners of the psyche that a lot of people don't want to look at and face. But maybe they'll look at it and encounter it in a story if you put it in the form of that demon over there or that shadow being over there. So it's all has to, it has to resonate with the reality. Even the most far out stuff has to feel real. We have to identify with that in some way. Yeah. Does that make okay. sense? No, I think that that answers it. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I think it's like it's one of those things where it's much easier said than done, <laughs> you know, like you have to have to wrestle with how to actually pull that off. Um, but I can, you know, because just there's so much stuff like Dr. Fate. We talked about Spectre. Um, there's just so many examples where I can see where like there's such a danger because I've read these comics too, the, the bad ones, right? Not yours, but other examples where it's like it's just all cosmic, you know, uh, shenanigans and it's like i have nothing to latch on to here i don't you know there's no focus right um right right it is it's it's a hard balance and i think that's why you always have to keep the no matter how far out your story is you have to there has to be a psychological and emotional reality to it and that you know that's true of of any story and certainly any form of fantasy if you're writing a story about elves and dwarfs it still has to have a psychological reality that the readers can relate to because if you can't relate to it then it just becomes like pretty pictures or a head trip, you know, um, right, you know, you right. smoke a joint and stare at the wall, you know what I mean? That's yeah. not what you're aiming yeah. for. You want to tell a good story. So, okay, um, very cool. So, and, all right. So what are the, um, what are the remaining books for the, the multiverse? Okay. So the next one, we, we spoke about the Ben Riley series. Let's talk about any man, which is David Baldion, who, who yeah, illustrated awesome. the, uh, he is really, really good. Uh, I've said this before. I didn't really know David's work before we worked together on Ben Riley. And he just blew me yeah. away with his work. And his work on Any Man is is even better. Um, Any Man, on the surface at least, is the most traditionally superhero one of the bunch. Um, but even this one, it's a big story. It takes place over a span of about 50 years from 1969 to 2019. The mm-hmm. premise is, starts in 1969, Times Square, a portal opens, a costume figure comes through the portal, uh, announces to the world that he's come from millions of years in the past, from a utopian civilization where you know a golden age peace and prosperity uh, uh, uh immortals but something happened along the way there was some he never says what it is there's some great tragedy their their hubris got the better of them they reached too high and too far the whole civilization came crashing down he's the lone survivor he's come from the past because this 1969 is the beginning of our crisis point and he wants to help us prevent the fate that happened to his people over the course of those next 50 years, he becomes not just a hero to the United States, but a global hero looked up to around the world, uh, a figure of great inspiration. And the only problem here is that that entire story that he's told us is a complete lie. Sure. So who is he really? Why is he here? What's the agenda? Who created him? And that's just the first twist. And there's another twist beneath that and then a third twist beneath that. And, and the fun of this story, especially as we get to continue it, which I hope we will, is that there's a main story taking place in 2019, but along with that, we're jumping back and forth through time over those 50 years with yeah. different events in the life of any man. So that's that's a fun one. Do you get to, um, I don't know how much this will appeal to you, so I'm sure you get to play with the history of it. Do you also get to play yeah. with the sort of comic stylings of those different eras as well? Because I'm always a sucker for... You know, okay, this is set in the Bronze Age, so the the comic sort of you know if the flashbacks right, you know there, like, that's actually very similar to yeah, similar to something that I did with a, a book I did with my friend Mike Cavallero for IDW called The Life and Times of Savior Twenty Eight, which also was a yeah yeah that's I am thinking of that, that took yeah. place over time and we played with the different eras. Um, we haven't gotten that in the first issue, no, we don't. But as we go along, perhaps. But that's not really the focus of this one. You know, this one sure. is is a little different. Like Savior Twenty Eight was all not just about it was sort of about the political and pop culture history of the United States in a lot of ways. This will certainly get into historical stuff along the way, but it's, I, I don't think it's going to lean so much into the, the superhero, uh, the, the evolution of the superhero, say, in the way that Sabre 28 did. Yeah. But you never know. I never know where these stories are going to lead me. So, you know, the, I know where this, I, I, have a, I have a map. The great thing is, you know, you always want to have a map. I imagine it's like tent poles too. I put up, I've got 20 tent poles going, going that way. And, and that's mm-hmm. the story. And I'm trying to follow the tent poles. Well, at some point, 
if the story is really working, all those tent poles are going to fall over and I'm going to suddenly be creating <laughs> new paths in the sand and going off in a completely unexpected direction. Or my other, my other metaphor that I've beaten into the ground is that the story is like a horse. You know, you're on the horse and you say, horse, we're going that way, six miles that way to that town. And the horse gallops off and it goes for about a mile and starts pulling off to the right. And you're like, no horse, I have to go this way. And it's pulling off to the right. <laughs> and you as the rider yeah. have a choice. Do you allow that? Do you force the horse to go the way you want to go? Or do you follow where the horse wants to go? And the horse is the story and the characters. The horse is always right. Listen to the horse, you know, in a weird way. I just think that's the best advice I could ever give another writer is listen to the horse, you know, follow it where it's going to lead you. Because once the story takes over and has a life and a direction of its own, that's when you know you're onto a good thing. When the story rears up and surprises you, that's when you know you're onto a good thing. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. funny because it's like the way you talk about story as it's almost this sort of living, moving thing, I, I think is very that. hard. Yeah, no, I can tell. I can tell for sure. Like I've heard you say it a bunch and it's it's super like I have no skepticism about that so much as because I'm not actively writing story. It's just hard for me to right. sort of imagine like that moment where it's not you're not driving the ship so much as like it just kind of takes you, you know? Yeah. And, it, and that to me, that is when that's the most magical part of the whole creative process. When it stops being about you, it's like my conscious mind gets out of the way. And the way I imagine it, the unconscious is back there and it's churning and it's creating. But it's not just the unconscious. I almost feel like behind the unconscious is a door to something even bigger than the unconscious. And that's coming through your unconscious and working through there. And then it comes blasting out of your conscious mind. And it's like, my God, what is that? I better write that down, you know? And when those moments <laughs> yeah. happen, when, when, when story takes off in an unexpected direction, when characters appear that I never planned on, when somebody says something and I go, I didn't know that, then I know I'm onto something good. And, and mm. it doesn't, you know, and it's funny in those moments, you're not thinking about, will this story be successful? Will it sell well? Will it help my career? You're not thinking about anything but the story. And it doesn't matter if you're being paid two cents for it or $2 million or nothing. You're in the story and it's that creative process. It's almost a meditative process, you know, and it's completely fulfilling when that's happening. Hmm. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. All right. What's our what's our next story into multiverse? Next one is Godsend, or as the artist Matthew Dow Smith likes to call it, God's End. And and I, I always mm. thought of it as Godsend and he kept calling it God's End. And I said, oh, you know what? That actually is correct also when I thought about where the story is going. Um, so nice pun, you yeah. can call it either one as far as uh, I, I, I guess I was unconsciously brilliant when I uh, when I titled the story. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And so 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 God send or God's end is is the main character is a guy named Eric Small, who is a, uh, a 35 year old junior high school teacher. Sad, sad character who had a painful, dysfunctional childhood not in good health, overweight, depressed. He's got like one good friend. He's teaching junior high. And I was talking to somebody about this. I realized it's like the worst job I could pick for him as a teacher because junior high, if you remember what it was like <laughs> yeah. being the kid in junior high, you just torture your teachers. It's just a nightmare, you know? So he's teaching yeah. junior high and you know he's, he's, he's got a thing for this one teacher at the school. He can't even get up the courage to like to talk to her. And into this sad gray life and into the world that he lives in descends this blue skin celestial being that the media calls Godsend. And my one liner on this is, is Kirby Gods meets Philip K. Dick meets the Matrix. So, um, so he becomes completely obsessed with Godsend. It's, and there's something in this being that he can't understand. And no one really knows who this Godsend is, where he came from, what his agenda is. His agenda might be a terrible agenda. We don't know. But Eric feels like there's something about this guy that holds the key to my own life and my own existence. And he's not the only one. Other people in the world are feeling the same thing. And one day, Eric's sitting at home and he looks up and standing in his living room is this seven foot tall being with a turtle's body and a man's head, calls himself Korm, K-O-R-M. And he basically says, get on my back. And Eric is like, what the hell? get on my back. Well, if a seven foot turtle shows up in your living room and says, get on my back, you get on his back. And the guy basically flies him through the wall. And this begins a series of events that that completely shreds Eric's sense of self. I love that. I love stories that deal with who we think we are versus who we really are, what we assume reality is versus what lies mm -hmm. under that skin of the world. And that's what Godsend is about. 
And so Eric's vision of himself and of reality gets shredded in that moment. And that really kicks the book off into something that as we continue it, and I, and I hope we will continue it, will will introduce a whole new mythology and dozens of new characters along the way. So it's another cool. really, really big story. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, just the tagline, right? Kirby, Phil K. Dick, Matrix, like there's, that's, that's a yeah, book yeah. right there. That you know, I, 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 I grew up, I grew up on the Twilight Zone, you know, I remember being like five years old, the sure. first time I ever saw a Twilight Zone episode. And it resonated oh, with me so deeply, because the whole idea that, you know, the world, and this has been my experience, the world is not what we perceive it to be. Beneath that skin of the world, there's a lot of other wild, interesting, magical, miraculous uh, stuff happening. And mm. and so I love stories that will poke through that skin of the world, peel it back. And that's why I think fantasy is actually one of the best ways to actually write about reality, because reality is far more fantastic than we take it to be. Hmm. So, Interesting. Um, Interesting. And, and Godsend really plays with those themes, really plays with yeah. those themes. OK. And, All right. And then what's, and finally, what's the we have guy? our bonus what's, book. What's the, new yeah, one? the bonus book is called yeah. Edward Gloom Mysteries. And um so, so th th I, I, this, I haven't had to describe this one since we just announced it today. So I'll try to clumsily describe it for you. Hey, no worries. My yeah, one, here. Here's, here's, here's my one-liner on this one. It's, it's um, Frankenstein meets Sherlock Holmes as written by Charles Dickens. How's that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. It, it, takes, it's, it takes place in a world that is not, our, not any particular world. It's sort of a mashup of the modern world and Victorian London with all its attendant fog and gothic gloom. And the main character is a Frankenstein-like creature that was cobbled together from the, from the bodies and brains of a dozen different dead people. But he has escaped his creator, and he is far from a monster. He is probably the most sensitive soul you're ever going to meet on the planet. He is a poet. He's a novelist. He writes symphonies. He's a mathematician. He's a historian. He's a philosopher. And he writes all, all these things under different names and sends them out into the world. He lives a very quiet, cocooned life with his girlfriend, who happens to be a ghost, and several other people in his little family. And, uh, and so he is his, uh, belying his monstrous frame. He is the, probably the most sensitive soul and a true genius who wants to bring beauty into the world. And then something begins happening in his city, which is called Amsterdam City, D-A-M-N, D-A-M-N, Amsterdam, um, where these, these creatures begin appearing and disrupting life in the city, and he begins to realize that his creator, this madwoman who created him, who he believed to be dead, is back. And mm. now he's being ripped from his cocoon. He has to go out into this world that he fears with his little team, solve these mysteries of what's going on, and stop her. So that's mm. the premise. And uh, the artist is Vasilis Gagzilis. He's, uh, he's from Greece. I've worked with him uh, for years. He's one of the most talented artists I, I've ever encountered. Also one of the fastest, too. Works in, he does everything from realistic painting to the most surreal comics you've ever seen. And, and he, he, he's really kind of working in this one in a sort of uh, Bernie Wrights and Mike Plug 70s style, you know? Oh, nice. Yeah. It's, so it's a, it's a beautiful book. And, uh, and it, it was really a last minute decision because we've been working on this book all along and, and, and talking to publishers. And we thought, you know, the first issue's done. Let's throw it in as a bonus. And so now we get not four books, but five books. And as I said, the other four are the nice. ones you vote on. This is, just a, this is just an extra for people that have supported us and also to bring in some people for the last week of the Kickstarter. And just to make it like, it's kind of like a Christmas feast. You know, if you don't, if you're not a fan of my work, it's not a Christmas feast. But if you like my work, it's a Christmas <laughs> feast. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're not, a, if you're not a fan, you're probably not back in the Kickstarter anyway. So that's, right. That's Although funny. I have to say, um, when you consider that, when you consider the talent that we have here, I always say, just remove me from the equation, and you look at, you know, Tom Mandrake and Matthew Dow Smith and Basilis and and David Baldion and Sean McManus, and then we have alternate covers by Kevin McGuire, um, uh, Dustin Yen, um, J. H. Williams III. Uh, Liam Sharp nice. has done the cover for the collected edition. Uh, so yeah. it's like it's it's just it's it's a feast, really. It's a feast for the it's that's a great tagline. It's a feast for the comic book fan. <laughs> but uh, but really, if I was no, a these, fan, sound, these and, sound really fun. Yeah, they are fun. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of this. And it's one of the one of the most exciting uh, adventures I've had in all my years working in comics. So I hope that we're we're we're, we're live until noon on November 10th. 
So come along for the ride and uh, and come on this adventure. And hopefully this is the beginning of the adventure. Not, you know, this is just yeah. the first step in launching all these books out into the world. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. It seems like you're on on track for that, which would be super cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you feel about, you know, you're getting, this is your first Kickstarter experience and you're getting to kind of experience the highs and highs and challenges of that. How do you feel about like where comics are at, you know, in 2022 and this year, you know, you, you've been doing it for a while. Like, how does it, how does the state of comics feel to you? You know, that's an interesting question. Here, here's the thing. It depends on who you talk to. You know, you'll, you'll talk to people from the first day I was in the business. There were people telling me that comics were going to be dead and gone in two years. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And at just yeah. about every stage of the game, maybe not during the boom in the 90s, but certainly the, the bust immediately after the boom. Again, oh, no, comics were done. They're just going to license us out. They're going to make movies and they don't need us and all that. And, and uh-huh. you know, and I, you can still hear that talk now. But I really what, what I like about comics now is kind of what I'm talking about with the multiverse. If you're looking for it, there's really a wide variety of material out there and incre- in, mm-hmm. in many, many genres and very, st- very different styles. Kind of going back to what we were talking earlier, a comic book isn't one thing or another any more than a movie is one thing or another. It's like saying, uh, well, you know, Marvel makes superhero movies, so I guess all movies are superhero movies. No, movies are anything right. that you put on film and any story you want to tell by putting something on film, just like comics are any story in any genre, in any style. And that's what I like about what's going on with comics now is that um, you can find anything out there. Now you have to look. The, the other pro- you know, the flip side is, you know, when I was a kid, you could find comics anywhere. You know, the local candy store, the local drugstore, the comics were everywhere. You know, now that you have to go to specialty shops and find them, and 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 it's a struggle. One of the reasons I'm doing the Kickstarter is I've seen over the years getting creator-owned work out into the world is a difficult thing and getting it so that people are aware of it and notice it and actually buy it it's a big thing you know when i when i started doing creator own work it was for marvel with the epic line and then i did a lot of work for vertigo where you were supported by marvel and dc you got to keep the rights to your work but you actually got paid a decent wage yeah. for doing the work and that doesn't exist anymore a lot of people that do creator own comics now are working for free and hoping that there'll be something on the back end that will reimburse them you know so it's right, a struggle. With, right. So the good news for the readers is there's so much stuff out there. The struggle for the creator is to find a venue to get it out there. You know, that's why, you, you know, you talk to pub, all these publishers are like, yeah, well, we want we want the movie rights. We want the movie rights because even they're not you know, necessarily making the money that they, they need to be making. So they need something else on the back end to bring the money in right. to support the comics. So that's that's the downside for me. Because, you know, for me, I'll go back to the thing I've been saying. All I want to do is tell good stories. I, I want to tell them in comic books. I want to tell them in prose. I want to tell them in TV and film, whatever it is. And I don't like having to think about this other stuff, but there's the other part of your brain, and it's the only way I've survived as a freelancer for 40 years. You have to pay attention to this other stuff and find the right venues for your work and find the people that will support it. Yeah. Does yeah, that make no, any sense? You get taken advantage of. I mean, that's that, no, it does because it's you know the history of the medium, right? Is is folks who are just like I'm just out here telling you know Jack Kirby obviously famously right just out here telling incredible stories, yeah. and then you know you get taken advantage yeah. of right by these by these organizations. So it totally makes sense. Um, I got a question for you that's that's a little out there, but you know we kind of joked about this earlier talking about Doctor Fate. Who who in collections at Marvel and DC did you hurt? <laughs> <laughs> that they don't collect your work at, at nearly the appropriate capacity. It's so weird. You've written so many good things, Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, Dr. Fate. You know, there's so many things out there that are like uncollected. What's the deal? Do you have any idea? You know, and the, well, those, those two are the ones that really, that really, I, I'm, spe- I'm totally speechless. I don't understand. Why yeah. I, especially that's, you know, I could see Dr. Fate as a more obscure character, though now that he's in this movie, maybe that will, give them a push to get these collections out there with Dr. Fate in them. It know? often does, yeah. Um, uh, but the spectacular Spider-Man run, uh, in some individual issues have been collected in other collections, but I don't understand. If I really looked at all my superhero work and I said, so what's the very best work I've done? Those two years, especially with Sal on Spectacular Spider-Man. Well, Sal Buscema, yeah. You know, it was a magical collaboration. And some, you know, and again, you, you can't you can't create it, you can't make it happen. It just happens. And we we just clicked Sal and I, and for two years we were we were just you know going on all thrusters, and and it's it's work that I'm really really proud of, and it tells one giant story over the course of those two years, 
And I would yeah. love to see it out there. And I have no clue why it hasn't been collected. And I'm just like everybody else. The solicits come out every month. And I'm looking, oh, is it collected? Because sometimes I see stuff of mine collected that I'm like, gee, I'm really sorry they collected that. You know, I would like to have drifted <laughs> off into obscurity. And here's this work yeah. that I'm so proud of that's never been collected. I have another story at DC. I did a Batman story for Legends of the Dark Knight called Going Sane with Joe Staten. Yeah. Uh, maybe, oh, yeah. maybe if not the best, one of the very best superhero stories I've ever done. They collected it once mm. about 10 years ago. It went out of print and it hasn't been in print since. You know, so, so I have, unfortunately, I have no control over that. I have control over my creator own work, which is why in recent years I've been working really hard to get all that stuff back out in print because I have right. some agency there. I have no agency yeah. when it comes to Marvel and DC. No, I know. I know. I'm going to keep banging this drum because I, I got to tell you, I have never, it's one of the weirdest collection situations I have ever encountered. I have to be completely out. Like, like, like rereading those spectacular Spider-Man books, not only are they really flipping good, which they are, um, that work you do with Sal Buscema, but like, it's really important Spider-Man uh, tapestry stuff. You know, the relationship between Peter and Harry, like that stuff is, is very important and also ingrained in in film and stuff since you know so it seems like the sort of thing that they would want out there i'm gonna keep banging the drum we, we got to get more oh, of these yeah, books out I, there i appreciate it i appreciate it and even like you know even something as simple as dr kafka in those stories who, who was they brought back and yeah. now has evolved into this uh this important character in the current continuity that was when she was introduced you know this all you know i don't know i i i'd love to have an answer for you and say it's because of this and you know as me no, as i know theory, I, I know sitting it's not in my office you, yeah I can make up all these answers and paranoid answers if I want, but that's not, it's not, rarely is that ever the case. Sure. There's always some, some decision that's like just off beyond the edges of my consciousness that I don't know about, but I have to believe because eventually it seems they collect everything. Uh -huh. And you know, sometimes yeah. I do, I see, I see something, I'm going through this list and it's the Joe Blow omnibus. And I'm like, I've never heard of Joe Blow. <laughs> why, isn't, why isn't there a yeah. spectacular Spider-Man omnibus, you know? Um, Truly, but yeah. like I said, I have I have no control over that. I really I really don't. So uh, I just right. keep checking every right. month. And I keep hoping. All right, all right. We're gonna we're gonna keep asking. We need we need to get some some pressure on these things because I appreciate uh, it's that. a weird I one. I know somebody actually yeah. did a a, um, a petition, put a petition on sure. to petition Marvel about this. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm baffled. Seriously baffled about that. <laughs> Okay. All right. You and me both then. Um, let's, let's wrap it here with a couple, uh, listener questions. We had a couple folks okay, writing sure. in, um, with some questions. Uh, Sheik asks, are there any new heroes today that you wish you could have included in past stories or take on now? So presumably on the, on the DC Marvel side of things, are there any characters you look at and you're like, I wish I could have gotten to do a, a little more stuff with them. That's an interesting question. Um, honestly, none that come to mind. You know, yeah. I, I've been I've been very lucky in that between my work for Marvel in D.C. and then my work in the D.C. animated world, I've gotten to write so many of those characters. Um, and I can't think of any newer characters that would jump into my head that, oh, I'm really, really I'd love to write that one. Um, but I'm probably just not thinking. Um, you know, the, the one thing I always, I've, I've said for years that these are not new characters. These are the oldest Marvel characters. I always wanted to do a Fantastic Four thing with Giffen and McGuire. I always thought the mm. three of us on Fantastic Four, with our approach, could have so much fun with those characters. Because the Fantastic Four always had, with the cosmic adventure, a nice humorous bent to it as well. And, oh, yeah. Um, that's one of, that's, that's, that, you know, I, I never have written the Fantastic Four. I've written some of them as individual characters, but never the Fantastic Four together. So that's one I would like to do. So it's not exactly the answer uh, they're looking for, but that's, that's the answer I came up with. Sure, sure. No, that's an interesting pick. Um, let's see, we got, uh, Andy asks, what was it like writing um, a gay character for Marvel in the, in the early 1980s in your Captain America run? I believe the reference here is uh, Arnold Roth. Did you have yeah. to like sneak that by editorial? Because I know at the time it was pretty famously difficult or or impossible to do that. It was difficult. Um, and what's interesting is, well, there's two things. One is uh, I was working with Mark Gruenwald, who was a wonderful guy and a wonderful editor. And um, he never said a word. You know, he did not say, you can't do that or you don't have to change. Now, you have to remember the era that it was in. We could never come out and say, hi, I'm Arnie Roth, Roth and I'm gay. But the stories and the context of the story 
made it clear of what that was. And, as, and the more we went along, the clearer it went. But here's the thing, and it right. goes back to what we're talking about before. You know, I wasn't trying to make some grand statement, you know, um, but it just made logical sense to me from a character sense and a story sense. Steve Rogers represents the best of America, not the American reality, the American dream, the big tent that includes everybody. His girlfriend was yeah. Jewish. His best friend was the Falcon, a black guy. So when I brought in uh, Arnie Roth, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to bring in a gay character, capital G, capital C, you know? It just felt like right. a natural progression. And yes, we did We did a couple of times bump heads with some higher-ups at Marvel, and I had some, some elements here and there that they rewrote a line or two because they thought it was too on the nose. But the great thing was that it was still really, really clear. There was one issue in particular when the Red Skull had captured Arnie, and he kind of created a 1930s cabaret scene and dressed uh, Arnie yeah. up like like Joel uh, Joel Gray in Cabaret and made him give this humiliating monologue about himself, you know? Yeah. And the monologue really made it clear what he was talking about, and they rewrote that. But then you turn the page, and Steve is there holding Arnie in his arms, basically saying, Arnie, your love for Michael is as sacred and, and as true as my love for, for Bernie, who was his girlfriend at the time. I mean, it was right there. Yeah. Uh, hit it right on the head right there so we got to we and it's only in looking back that i realized it was a big deal at the time it didn't feel like a big deal again i was just riding that horse following the story and that's sure. where it led me so it's been a great yeah. thing in the years since when so many people have, have contacted me on social media or at a convention to say it meant so much to me to see myself represented in a character like that that's yeah. amazing yeah you, that's you, amazing you can't ask for anything more Right, right. No, that's great. Yeah, and you're just reflecting the world and following the story. Um, but yeah. it is wild and re like historically, like that's like a decade ahead of the the doors actually being opened for a character like Northstar to like openly come out as gay within a comic. Right. Um, so it's like really ahead of the time, and it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think it is rewarding. I'm sure for readers, um, especially. So, all right, we got a final question here from Jordy who okay. asks, what is your favorite memory of working on JLI with Keith Giffen and Kevin McGuire? You know, it, it, uh, my favorite memory will be a funny memory because it's not so much the creative work. We would go up to the office every, every other Friday, the checks would come down. And so all the freelancers would descend on DC on, on that Friday afternoon and wait to get their checks. Yeah. And we would go hang out in Andy Helfer's office and, and Kevin was usually, you know, chained to a chain to a desk because as Kevin will tell you, it was hard to get those pages out of him, but God, were they beautiful when he was done, you know? And Keith would be there and I'd be there and Andy'd be there and Andy would take us out to lunch. And it was just, it was the sense of camaraderie, I think, you know? It was just, uh, just be, you know, there was a, the 80s especially, it was a really special time in comics. There was, there was a sense of freedom on all the books, like I was, we were saying about Dr. Fate, I got, got to write Dr. Fate as if it was a creator-owned book and do anything I wanted with it, you know? We were having yeah. fun. We, they, gave us, they gave us the sandbox and said, have fun. And come, we, you know, we, all, we all work alone in our little corners. People thought, you know, Keith and I, oh, we're a writing team. We must be together in a room writing scripts. We worked in glorious isolation. I wouldn't know half the time what was in the stories until the plot showed up at my house and I had to get the script done in two days and get it off, you know? Um, yeah, so to come yeah. together in the office was, was, was just a great time to be together and sit and talk and catch up. It was the same thing with the clone saga. My favorite memory of the clone saga is less about the stories than about the meetings we used to have every two weeks. The writers would go up to Marvel. They'd lock us away in a little conference room. We'd get Chinese food or pizza. We'd scream at each other for two hours respectfully and create stories together, yeah. you know? And that was the yeah. fun of it was was being with these other creative guys because, again, we live in such isolation in our day to day lives. To get together and be in a room full of people creating story was just so much fun, especially people that you like. And what happens in this business with with certain people is you start out as as collaborators and you're thrown together, and over the years it becomes a friendship. You know, I still pick up the phone periodically and I'll call Keith and check in and see how he's doing and what's going on. And we talk not as collaborators, but as friends. And you wake up, you know, yeah. 20 years later or whatever it is, and you go, oh, that guy's not just the guy I work with on that book. That guy's my friend. And it's a nice thing. Yeah. Very good. Very good. All right. What I think we've we've covered most of it, but what else is okay. next? Is there anything else you want to make sure people know about? 
Let me see. What else do I? Oh, I do want people to know about my novella. I have a novella that came out in June. It's a supernatural thriller called The Excavator. It's my first prose that I've done since my novel uh, Imagine Alice came out in 2010. It's a book I'm really, really proud of. And speaking of Vasilis, who did the artwork on Edward Gloom, Vasilis did 10 beautiful painted illustrations for this book. You can get it as a good old fashioned book that you could pick up in your hands or an ebook on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so I will plug that. And I am actually working on another novella right now, which will be out um, probably in the first part of next year. So oh, cool. it's, it's been a lot of fun to return to prose after a, after a 10 year gap. And uh, Ben Riley and uh, Ben Riley uh, Lost Hunt is coming out next week. And hopefully the future of the multiverse going forward. You know, if we can get all five yeah. of these books, I, I mean, I would be happy working on all five of these series for, you know, for the rest of my life and just following these and, and just telling those stories. Obviously, while do, you know, I want to keep doing the prose too, but I'm talking in terms of comics, I'd be happy if sure. you could get these going, just working on those forever. But the great thing about this is there's always a surprise around the corner. You know, tomorrow the phone could ring and so, oh, you want to write such and such? Okay. And off you go. And it's something, you know, yeah. that's the fun is when it's something, just like the story surprises you, your career surprises you. That's the only way you, you stay alive as a freelancer. You get the the call for something unexpected, and your first reaction is, "Well, that's what." And then you go, "Oh, that would be really cool." And then you're off on a new adventure. So, I can be talking about all this stuff today, and the next time you talk to me, it's five different projects. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes. Uh, we'll we'll include Thank links you. to all that, of course, the excavator and multiverse. Um, but yeah, no, I really appreciate your time. I've enjoyed the work tremendously. We're going to keep um, hounding Marvel for some more collected editions. <laughs> I think what you need to do but... is go stand outside the Marvel office with a sandwich board, you know, and says, collect spectacular <laughs> Spider-Man. Just walk up yeah, and yeah. down on the sidewalk. Just yeah. waving copies around. That's yeah, right, no, that's we can, right. we can yeah, do that. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> the last thing I'll say was funny. Happily, someone at a convention a few years ago was kind enough. They made a bound volume of Dr. Fate. And they gave oh, it to me that's as a cool. gift. So I have a beautiful bound volume of Dr. Fate on my shelf. So even if DC never collects it, I've got it. You know? You've got Which it. Which is really You've sweet. You've got it. Really sweet. That's incredibly nice. Very cool. All right. Good yeah. note to go out on. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining. And uh, I really appreciate your My time. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.